This is Mayo Clinic Talks, a curated weekly podcast for physicians and healthcare providers. I'm your host, Daryl Chutka, a general internist at Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. Depression is a common disorder seen in a primary care practice. The majority of patients with depression are evaluated and treated not by psychiatrists, but by primary care providers. And it's been shown that we correctly diagnose depression only about half the time. And despite the fact that we have some very good treatment options for depression, those on treatment often have continued symptoms of depression. So to help us understand more about depression and its treatment, we're honored to have Dr. Bruce Souter with us today. Dr. Souter is a Mayo Clinic psychiatrist and practice chair of the Department of Psychiatry and Psychology in Rochester, Minnesota. Bruce, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. Bruce, I think of depression as a great masquerader, and I know there have been times when I've kind of backed into a diagnosis of depression in elderly patients who have a memory loss or other patients who have a lot of somatic symptoms, but why is depression so difficult to diagnose? Well, I think in particular in the primary care setting, uh, it is more difficult than in the specialty setting. I think that's largely because people are coming in with a lot more varied complaints. As a psychiatrist, it's not uncommon for people to come forward and say, I'm depressed. However, in the primary care setting, uh, oftentimes people will present with a lot of different somatic symptoms. Um, they may be anxious, or they may have belly pain, or they may have other types of symptoms, and they aren't coming in the door saying depression. Um, and I think that in the primary care setting, if somebody comes in with a physical complaint, your job in a short amount of time is to focus on that physical complaint. And so the, the person may be having a somatic symptom consistent with depression, but isn't saying, I'm depressed. And that's often the case, and at least the patients I've seen, they come in with various physical complaints, and you evaluate them, and they kind of go nowhere, and then all of a sudden there's a new one, and it kind of goes nowhere, and then you kind of think, gee, maybe this patient's depressed, and that's the diagnosis eventually. Well, let's talk about the classic symptoms of depression. All right, so for the illness major depression, the classic symptoms are uh, that for a two-week period of time, people will have five of the following nine symptoms. So they um, may have a depressed mood, and uh, they may not be able to enjoy anything. They may have something called anhedonia. So things that they normally enjoy doing just don't feel like doing. Um, there may be appetite uh, changes. Most people will have either a decreased appetite and weight loss, although some people can have increased appetite. Uh, there can be uh, sleep changes, either sleeping more or having a harder time with sleep. They may have difficulty concentrating or focusing. In fact, in older folks, they may come in, that may be the complaint, is I can't remember, can't remember anything. I'm not uh, concentrating and focusing on things. I must have dementia, when in fact it might be a depression that's driving it. Uh, they may have a change in energy, usually decreased energy. They may have feelings of guilt, feeling overwhelmed by um, I'm not worthy, I'm a burden to my family, those sorts of things. And then suicidal thinking can also be uh, part and parcel of a depression. Okay. One of the th things that's happening in primary care practices is we're asked to see more patients in less and less time. So are there maybe one or two really important questions that we could ask that are highly productive in terms of, uh, or highly predictive in terms of establishing a diagnosis of depression, or at least letting us think about it? Yeah, I think that two questions that can get to the heart of this are um, uh, in DSM, what are the first two symptoms listed? Are you depressed? 
Are you able to enjoy things? If people answer yes to both of those, the chances of them meeting criteria for major depression are pretty high. Um, if they answer one of them uh, as a positive, uh, then um, uh, there's also a good chance, but less so than if they were both. Mm -hmm. and, and there's pretty good evidence that if those two questions are answered negatively, that um, uh, you won't miss um, most depressions. It seems that depression often affects one's sleep. Uh, what type of sleep problems do depressed patients uh, do have? Yeah, it's pretty common for people to have uh, uh, initial and middle insomnia. So then either a hard time falling asleep or sometimes they will fall asleep fine, but then they'll awaken and can't get back to sleep. Uh, uh, atypical depressions, the person is sleeping a lot more. So they may find themselves, you know, uh, just tired and needing more sleep than they otherwise would. Hmm. Okay. Does anxiety often come along with depression? Do those two coexist? Yeah, the two oftentimes come hand in hand. And even though anxiety is not part of the diagnostic criteria uh, for uh, major depression, uh, it is not uncommon, particularly in the elderly population, for the presenting problem to be anxiety. And so, um, uh, but in all populations, the two oftentimes do come together. Okay. How about screening instruments? Are some available that are pretty good, and do they have to be administered by the uh, healthcare provider, or is there uh, some paramedical staff? Or are they self-entered? So there are a variety of screening instruments, and um, uh, they uh, majority of these are um, self-entered or self uh, self-reported, and really should be done uh, the day of or uh, right before an appointment. Um, the uh, uh, some of these are the the PHQ-9 is a very common one. There's a Beck depression inventory. Uh, there's a, a Zung depression inventory, um, and um, but really I think the most common used in primary care settings these days are the PHQ-9. Mm -hmm. Okay. One of the important things to remember about screening instruments is that they are screening instruments only. And one of the th mistakes that I see when these are used is that people will use these as a shortcut to diagnosis. So someone may have a high PHQ-9 score as an example, and the conclusion is they have depression. And uh, I think this shortcut to diagnosis um, actually does people a disservice. A screening instrument when positive doesn't save you time, it actually will take you more time now because then it's incumbent upon the clinician to answer the question, why is the screening instrument positive? Mm -hmm. um, if someone has active alcoholism, it may be positive. If someone's had uh, under a lot of stress, death of a loved one, other sorts of things, that may be positive. And all too often, I think in the busy schedule that you mentioned, um, clinicians will see a high PHQ-9 score and jump to the conclusion this person suffers from depression. So I just ask people to keep in mind that these are screening instruments and not diagnostic instruments. Sure. And it's just like any other screening test. It's not a definitive test for a, a diagnosis. It may raise your suspicion that this condition may be going on. Correct. All right. Well, let's talk about the various depressive disorders. I know there are a variety of them, and I'm sure you deal with all of them in your practice, but how about for the primary care provider? Is it important for us to recognize which type of depressive disorder they have? I uh, believe that it is. Uh, the, the, the depressive categories are um, the illness major depression, which I just went through the diagnostic criteria of. Um, what used to be called dysthymia is, and is now called persistent depressive disorder are those same symptoms, but it's a low-grade smoldering depression. 
And then um, there can be depressions that are secondary to substance use or depressions secondary to medical illnesses. And then um, for some reason in DSM-5, they split out premenstrual dysphoric disorder as from being a subcategory of major depression. But why is it important? Um, the, the treatment of these uh, can be quite different. Now, if somebody has a significant medical illness that's driving their depression, it's important to be getting at the medical illness in addition to the depressive symptoms. Um, the recognition that persistent depressive disorder, while not as severe, is oftentimes much more difficult to treat. Uh, may take combinations of medications, may take psychotherapy plus medications. Um, and I think that having a recognition um, of the different illnesses and the potential different outcomes of the illnesses um, really uh, changes one's expectation in terms of what to expect when treating. Okay. Let's say a patient has had depression at one point in their life. Are they at increased risk of developing it again? Yeah. So if someone has a, a history of a, a more severe major depression, a, an episode um, that meets criteria for that illness, um, they have a 50% chance, if they've had one episode, they have a 50% chance lifetime risk of developing a second episode. If they have a second episode, they are at about a 95% risk of another episode. And so for those folks, it's really important to have the conversation about how long should one continue on antidepressant medications. If people have had several episodes of depression and saying, gee, doc, I'd like to go off of this stuff, you really need to sit down and have that discussion with them. Okay, if that's the decision, we're going to need to keep a close eye on things because you are at risk of having another episode. So it's also important then to include a history of depression in the patient's problem list or at least in the past medical history so we can be aware that this may occur again. I would agree. Yeah. Let's talk a little bit about depression in the elderly. Are there any things that are unique about uh, depression in the older ages? Yeah, as I had mentioned earlier, depression will um, oftentimes uh, present as anxiety in the elderly population. And the memory changes, the cognitive changes that come uh, sometimes with dementia, excuse me, with depression, can be uh, uh, mistaken by patients, their families, and by clinicians as a dementia as opposed to a depression. Um, so it is not uncommon for someone to come in and say, I think I'm getting demented, I can't remember things. And the key here, the caveat here that I'd like folks to take away with is um, more than likely that is a depression or an anxiety problem as opposed to a dementia problem. If someone can remember that they're not remembering, they probably don't have a cognitive disorder unless mm -hmm. it's in a very early stage. But it's those who don't remember that they're not remembering. So the story of, you know, uh, the husband says, gee, my wife is just very forgetful. She's not remembering things. And the wife is going, no. I'm not forgetting anything. What's the matter with you? Those are the folks that would be more likely to uh, potentially have dementia than a depression. So the patients with some cognitive concerns who have a great deal of insight into their memory problems are less likely to have dementia and maybe more likely to have some depression? Correct. Okay. Let's talk a little bit about suicide because that does occur in depression. Um, how common are patients with depression thinking about suicide, or how often do they have suicidal thoughts? So it depends on which studies you're looking at and how suicidal thoughts are ranked, but essentially uh, it's thought that folks with major depression, anywhere from 10 to 40% of people will have had uh, suicidal thinking as a part of the depressive disorder. I teach uh, medical students how to talk to patients and take medical histories, and we sometimes give them a 
depression as a case, and sometimes they don't ask about depression or uh, ask about suicide. And uh, I say you have to ask about that. And the student says, "Well, I didn't want to give them that idea if they hadn't thought about it." But that's probably not going on, is it? That's correct. It, there's no evidence that asking someone about suicide um, causes them to start thinking about it. In fact, asking about it can open the door to people being more open uh, about uh, trusting to talk about um, suicidal thinking with the clinician. How do we assess a patient's risk for suicide? Well, uh, unfortunately, there's no predicting which particular patient will um, uh, uh, attempt or complete suicide. We know that women are at increased risk of attempting suicide than are men, uh, but men are more uh, likely to succeed because typically they will choose more lethal means. Um, so in assessing risk, um, if someone has had a previous suicide attempt, uh, that puts them at increased risk. If there is active substance use problems going on, that's a risk. There's a bimodal distribution where um, people in the late teens, early 20s are at increasing risk, and then um, uh, later in the elderly, particularly when there have been losses, uh, those sorts of things can put people at increased risk. Now, the suicide risk is evolving in our culture, and unfortunately, um, suicide is on the rise um, among all uh, patient groups. Just because one might have a, a middle-aged person, a middle-aged woman with a good support system, uh, doesn't mean, as an example, that she's not at risk. And I think that what we'll see is, over time, um, the risk stratification throughout the population um, is going to be changing um, as, unfortunately, these suicide um, rates rise. Mm -hmm. You mentioned uh, depressive thoughts following the loss of a loved one. How do we determine when the patient is still grieving over the loss of someone or they actually turn into a patient with depression? Yeah, and this is one where there really aren't any hard and fast uh, criteria, and it really involves clinical judgment because normal uh, bereavement is, uh, has uh, all the cardinal symptoms of uh, depression as a part and parcel of it, and I think that that's part of the human condition when we uh, lose a loved one or have other sorts of losses. And so really what it comes down to is, is the length of time and the severity more that one might expect um, for this person's culture or this person's family uh, background and who, in terms of this person's personality. Um, is, are the symptoms persisting uh, and severe for a long period of time? You know, if someone's uh, grieving a month out um, we wouldn't expect necessarily that this meets criteria or is the illness major depression. Six months out, eight months out, um, and the function just not coming back and the person continuing to be struggling, um, I would personally be more inclined to um, initiate um, treatment in someone like that. Okay. So let's say we've diagnosed a patient with depression. How do we then initiate treatment? So I think the first thing is... Um, making sure that the patient understands that they have this illness and what the illness is and recognizing, helping them to recognize uh, that this is not uh, uh, something to be embarrassed about. It's not something about uh, a personal weakness, anything along those lines, and that really this is a medical condition uh, that res can respond to treatment. Um, I think that the first step towards, towards managing depression is compliance. 
whether that's compliance with medication, compliance with psychotherapy, if that's what's recommended, uh, because too many people will walk out the door with a prescription or recommendation to see a therapist and don't follow through on it. Um, so I, so to me, that very first and most important step is helping the patient to understand what they have and the importance of treating it. So let's say we've made, we've made the diagnosis of depression. How do we choose an antidepressant? Well, there are uh, several different antidepressant agents that are available, and typically we will use an SSRI as a first-line agent for someone who has never uh, been diagnosed or treated before. I think that clinicians should use what they are comfortable with. Uh, so what the uh, latest uh, drug representative came by uh, and, and told you about, if you aren't sure of how this works, how it interacts with others, it, it doesn't make sense to start using that. So I think that... Um, uh, in terms of the history, if a person has had a positive response to an antidepressant in the past and tolerated it well, it makes sense to go back to it. Um, secondly, because we know there's an increased risk uh, from a genetic standpoint of depression in immediate family members, if one has an immediate family member who has a depression that's responded to a particular agent, it makes sense to think about that because of the genetic potential for this. And then otherwise, it really is uh, sometimes tailoring an antidepressant to um, the symptoms in terms of the side effects. So um, as an example, um, a 22-year-old woman with a first episode of, of depression who's not eating and not sleeping very well uh, might not like an agent um, that, um, uh, while it helps them sleep, has them you know, putting on 15, 20 pounds, as opposed to an elderly nursing home uh, uh, resident who's not sleeping and not eating very well. Um, we may be able to take advantage of that mm -hmm. side effect in a way, and the patient will be compliant with it. Um, so I think it's also um, uh, tailoring the side effects uh, and understanding the pharmacology of what this medication might do um, to the needs of the, uh, of the patient. There have been quite a few new antidepressants uh, introduced recently, and according to the TV ads, they're much better than the old ones, and they all work great. Is that accurate? Uh, so the answer is that um, for these agents, there's no um, indication that they have any more improved efficacy over uh, older agents. And in fact, um, I think there's evidence that uh, for people with more severe forms of depression, uh, that the old-fashioned tricyclic antidepressants are actually more effective than uh, the newer agents. Hmm, interesting. What about the patient that doesn't respond to a particular antidepressant? Is it best to switch to a different drug, or do we add a second antidepressant? So the first order of business, I think, is making sure, one, the patient's been compliant, two, they're on an adequate treating dose, and three, they've been on it for a long enough period of time. So we need to make sure that with the agent, um, well, I'll back up a second and say it's not unusual for me uh, to have patients referred as a psychiatrist uh, where um, they're called treatment refractory depression. And when I look back and really parse through the history, either they haven't been on an agent long enough or they haven't been at a high enough dose. So the mm -hmm. first order of business is making sure that they have been on the medication for a long enough period of time at a high enough dose and they've been compliant. If they've been on an adequate dose for at least four to six weeks without any response, then it makes sense to switch to a different medication. You were asking about augmentation, augmentation adding on another agent. Augmentation um, uh, makes sense if a person has had a partial response 
to an antidepressant medication and the dose is either maximized or they can't tolerate a higher dose, then it makes sense to think about augmentation. But if they haven't had a response to the initial agent, it doesn't make sense in my mind to use an add-on therapy as augmenting something that isn't working. Mm -hmm. What about non-pharmacologic treatment options? I know I would not be comfortable doing any counseling for depression, but what else is out there without using medications? So there is good evidence that in mild to moderate depressions, uh, cognitive behavioral therapy is effective, and in some studies has been shown to be as effective, if not more effective, than medications. So if a person is reluctant to take medications or would prefer to do cognitive behavioral therapy, a referral to a therapist trained in this um, uh, is very worthwhile considering. Other non-pharmacologic uh, interventions, there's a lot of uh, uh, new and different things that have come. There's an old treatment that um, is still around, and for more severe depressions, electroconvulsive therapy uh, is something that, um, that could be considered. Um, in recent years, transcranial magnetic stimulation has received FDA approval uh, for treating uh, mild to moderate uh, depressions. Uh, that is uh, something to consider. And I'm sure people have heard about uh, this is a, it's a medication, you're asking about non-medication, but a non-traditional. Mm -hmm. um, there's um, uh, quite a few uh, studies now and quite a few and quite a bit of availability for um, uh, the agent ketamine. Obviously, this is not something that's going to be done in primary care, um, but if you've got uh, uh, patients who have been hearing about these things and reading about these things, they're going to be asking. Sure. Finally, when should we consider referring to a specialist such as yourself? So I th think I would ask folks to come at this from the following direction. If you've got someone who um, has not responded uh, to a couple of different trials of antidepressants, it's worthwhile uh, doing that referral. If the symptoms are more severe, um, then it would be worthwhile considering a referral for psychiatry. And then um, I think from a safety standpoint, that if there is significant concern about the possibility of suicide, obviously if the person's saying, I'm going to hurt myself, um, it's an emergency situation and they need emergency referral, but if there's continued uh, question or concern about safety, then getting a mental health professional involved uh, would be important. I think if there's a lot of medical comorbidity uh, or there's a question of diagnostically what's happening, is this an anxiety problem? Is this a substance use problem? Maybe there's some, is this, you know, there are some things in the presentation that might sound a little bit like the person may be psychotic. Is this a psychotic depression or is there something else going on? So if there's, if there's diagnostic clarity that's needed, that would also be a good reason. We've been talking about depression with Dr. Bruce Souter, a Mayo Clinic psychiatrist. Thanks for sharing your insights with us, Bruce. Today's episode was sponsored by Mayo Clinic Online CME. Register for an on-demand medical education in a wide variety of specialties including the Psychiatry Clinical Reviews online course offering 6.5 credits that focus on pharmaceutical management, depression, addiction, PTSD, bipolar disorder, and suicide. Learn on your own time and register today at ce.mayo.edu. If you've enjoyed Mayo Clinic Talks podcasts, please subscribe, stay healthy, and see you next week.